Uh, well, good morning, everyone. It's so lovely to have uh, our church family all together. Um, I really do have the sort of privilege as the team leader to go from site to site and visit you all. Um, but it's very rare that you get to see the rest of your church family. So just take a little look around. Just breathe in this moment. This is what your family looks like a little bit. I know it's a bit disappointing, but you'll be all right. Um, uh, no, uh, I'm just so proud uh, and so grateful for where as I look out, I, uh, I know a little bit of your stories and what God has done in your lives and uh, what an absolute honor and privilege it is to serve you and uh, to bring you together as this family. So I'm, I'm just absolutely delighted that we get to do this from time to time. I don't know if you've ever been in a Bible study where um, perhaps someone has, has, has read a passage and then you've sort of gone around the room and everyone has sort of said what that passage meant to them. And everyone sort of took a turn. Everyone said something different and said, this is what it means to me. And then you finish and that's it. I've been in those. And just so you know, reading a passage and jumping straight to this is what it means to me is not only poor Bible study, but it can actually be quite dangerous because you could basically make the Bible say whatever you want. And so there's some, some good little rules for good Bible study, which we can put on the screen, which are just asking three basic questions, context, interpretation, and application. The context is like, when was this book written? And who was it written for? And what sort of genre was it, it written? Because that helps determine the actual meaning. And then you're meant to ask, what did it mean for them? And so when we do DBS Bible studies, we often ask, what does it tell us about God? What it, does it tell us about people? And then the application is the final bit where you say, in light of this, what does that mean to us? And what we've learned recently is, is there anything we should do as a result of hearing? Is there anything we could share with others? So when we do Bible study, this is a good little sort of uh, grid of reference to make sure we're understanding what God intended from the Bible. But there's actually something you can add into this grid of interpretation. And if we can jump to the next slide, it's asking, how did the New Testament writers understand the passage that we're looking at? And obviously, we can only do that mainly with the Old Testament. But it gives us sort of another way of making sure we're understanding what God has given us for life and godliness. And so we are going to take this principle and apply it to probably the greatest event in the Old Testament. And we are going to look at the Passover and Exodus from the viewpoint of the New Testament writers. So we're going to look at the model of atonement of how God saves us through the Passover and the Exodus and how the early church first understood as they looked back what was going on. Personally, I find that really exciting, and I can feel the energy in the room as well, because I can tell you guys want to go there as well. So let's straight away get into the Bible. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 12. Bev is going to come to the front and read this for us. It's going to be on the screen, but if you've got a Bible, then please do get that out and uh, read along with us. So we're going to go Exodus chapter 12. We're going to go from verses 1 through 3. And why don't you just welcome Bev up as she comes to read. Thank you. 
Uh, Exodus 12, 1 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people they are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance to what each person will eat. The animals you'll, you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat, that, where they eat their lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with the bitter herbs and the bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till the morning. If some of it is left till the morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. To come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Brilliant. Bev, thank you so much. Let's give her a round of applause. Say thanks to her for reading. So I know that felt like a bit of a random sort of recipe and how to put a meal together and stuff like that. So let me give you the context. I'm, I'm going to cheat today. I'm going to show you a video. And this video helps explain why the meal, why the spotless lamb, why the blood on the doorposts and the angel of death culminate in God saving his people. So can we dim the lights and let's watch this video together. We have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely, in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up, and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just 
pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this god Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist, so he sends ten different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelites' sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry, and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly, as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes. It's helpful, isn't it? Gives you the big picture of what's going on. And so the New Testament writers, they look back on those events and they want to comment on them. And so we're going to look at four things in the time that I've got. First one is the longest, the remaining three are really short. So four things we're going to learn today. Number one, salvation through substitution. I don't want you to think about when you think of the word substitute. I think immediately of football and the fact that I was often the substitute. Uh, I think of substitute teachers. They're the ones you give a really hard time to when they stand in for the, is that what happens now, for the absent teacher? Or you think online shopping when you order your favorite breakfast seal and Morrison substitutes what you really want for some Pop-Tarts or something like that. Substitute is when you stand in someone else's place. And the New Testament writers use the Passover to explain salvation through substitution. Turn to the person next to you and say, salvation through substitution. So in the final days of his life, 
Jesus didn't just celebrate the Passover. He was to become our Passover. Jesus understood he was a Passover lamb. He was the substitute for us. And when the Apostle Paul looks at what Jesus does, he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. But what does that mean? Well, we saw from the video that the final plague, the tenth plague, would be different. Yes, God was judging this really evil king called Pharaoh. But did you notice that God was going to be aiming at everyone? this time. And so apart from some unforeseen provision, God was going to strike down every firstborn in Egypt, including the firstborn of Israel, which seems crazy. And when we read it, we think, God, why didn't you just sort of send the plagues and, and then just get the people out? Why the need for death? Why the need for Passover? Well, this goes back to what God had initially promised Israel back in Exodus 6 he says this therefore say to the Israelites I'm the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians so here's a promise I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment and then verse 7 is the second promise I will take you as my own people and I will be your God so first he says I'll bring you out of slavery and secondly I will take you as my people the tenth plague would have achieved this first part of the promise. So liberation, deliverance. But it would have still left their relationship with God unresolved. Because even though Israel was God's chosen people, and despite the fact that they'd been oppressed for centuries, the truth is they were still sinful. Ezekiel looks back and tells us that they'd been worshipping the false gods of Egypt. And God couldn't just ignore that sin. So the tenth plague kept them sort of safe from Pharaoh, but the Passover was needed to keep them safe from God's judgment. And so the message of this tenth plague of the firstborn sons being killed is, one, God is holy and just. But two, because of the Passover, God is also loving and merciful. And so what was God's solution well, God provided a simple lamb. He said, take a mature male that's one years old, that is perfect, that is without blemish. Examine it for four days to make sure there is no flaw in it. Let it live with you so that it means something to you. And finally, on the 14th day of the month, the night the death angel kills the firstborn, kill that lamb and then apply its blood to your doorposts. And when God sees the blood, he will pass over you. The blood has this astonishing power to bring God's acceptance and forgiveness. The blood somehow satisfies the judgment of God, and so he passes over. And that's the meaning of the Passover. God spares Israel's sons, not because they are better than Egypt's sons, but because a spotless lamb dies in their place and its blood covers the do their door. That is salvation through substitution. Look to your person next to you and say salvation through substitution. But this time, say it like you understand now what it means. So 
The message of the Passover is the message of Good Friday. If you wonder how an animal could be a substitute for a human, the answer is that ultimately it couldn't. It was a temporary solution, one that had to be repeated again and again and again. And the problem with sin and judgment, it couldn't just go away. So Good Friday is when God finally resolves that problem. So I hope you get this, that there was death in every house in Egypt during the 10th plague. There was not a house without someone dead. For Egypt, it was their firstborn sons, but for Israel, it was this spotless and therefore sinless lamb. And just as even Israel stood exposed to God's wrath in that 10th plague for their idolatry, we need to know that we also stand exposed to God's righteous wrath for our idolatry. The New Testament, when it looks at the problem in the world, it says all of us in our own ways have fallen short of the glory of God. We all face judgment for our wrongdoing. No one has got a pure heart. We all face spiritual death as a result of that uh, idolatry and sinfulness. And because God is holy and just, he can't just sort of take pity on us and say, oh, it's all going to be okay. Don't worry about that sin stuff. I'll forgive you. You know, a few, uh, quite a few years ago, someone picked up a signpost. I think they sort of broke it down from the street and chucked it through my front door. I had a front door that was sort of made of glass. And they chucked the sign through the front door, clambered through, and nicked everything in the house that had any value. Imagine the burglar is arrested and stands before a judge. Would it be kind or good for the judge to just let the criminal go and not have him receive any sort of justice? You know, I'm, I'm a nice judge, and I'm feeling in a good mood today. Yeah, you nicked all of Matt's stuff, but you know, it's all right. Everything's going to be fine. I forgive you. No, the judge can't just forgive him and let him go. There is a penalty for those actions that need to be paid. And more than that, just generally in life, all of us are outraged over incidents where people hurt others and don't bear the consequences of their wrongdoing. And how much more is this the case when God sees his righteous law violated? God, when he sees like the darkness in our hearts, he cannot just look away. And so in order to uphold his attributes of holiness and righteousness and justice, God must judge and punish sin. But just as he does for the Israelites in Egypt, because he's a loving and merciful God, he devises a way to bring salvation through substitution, through sending who? Through sending Jesus, his son. In the words of John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like the Passover the Lamb, he was a mature male, None of his bones were broken. He was thoroughly examined and found spotless. He lived amongst us. He was slain for our sins. His blood is shed onto wooden beams. And now we can boast, alongside Peter, who says this in 1 Peter, 
that we've been saved, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so that's what Paul means when he says Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Our salvation comes through his substitution. And that's why God can say to us, when I see his blood, I will pass over you. So it leaves us with one application question. Is his blood applied to you? Are you covered by the blood? Recall what Exodus 12 says. Strictly speaking, it wasn't enough for the Passover lamb to be slain. In order for God to pass over the people, the blood had to be applied to the door. If they had not done that, the lamb would not have done them any good. I'm told we've got a few Americans here today, but I'm told in the States there's something called the presidential pardon. And we don't have, I don't think, anything like this in the UK. But if the president so wishes, he's allowed to pardon anybody of the crimes they've been found guilty of. They get purged, they get forgiven. It's like a, in Monopoly, you know, you have a get-out-of-jail-free card. The president can give that to anyone. What's interesting is the US courts have uh, ruled that that pardon, that get-out-of-free-jail card, cannot be imposed upon a criminal. They must accept it for it to have its effect. So the president, no matter how powerful he is, he cannot force it. It needs to be received. Faith is the instrument by which the blood is applied to you personally. If you knock on God's door in, with humble faith, there is plenty of room inside his house. But you've got to knock. So have you knocked? Have you let the blood be applied to you? You know, some of you I know are on a journey of faith trying to work out what all of this is. I just hope with all my heart, like today would be the day you say, I'm ready for the blood to be applied to me. Number two, the New Testament writers also said not only was it salvation through substitution, but they wanted to talk about an exodus to a promised land. The New Testament writers used the Greek word for exodus only three times. It's quite a surprise. They only used that word for exodus three times. And it appears first in the account of the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah joined Jesus in this spectacular show of Jesus' glory. And Luke uses the Greek word for exodus when he spoke about Jesus' departure. This is what it says. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which is the Greek word, Exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So it's, it's quite geeky, this, but it's quite interesting as well, because Luke could have used loads of different words to describe Jesus' departure, and he picks the one that will be loaded with meaning for all the Jewish people that would have been listening. 
He's saying Jesus, as the ultimate Israel, is going to depart. He's going to leave. Like Moses, he's going to lead people on this second exodus into where? Into the promised land. But this time in Jerusalem, he's going to do that by going to the cross through his burial, through his resurrection, and then his ascension in order to make a way for those that will come in after him. So for Luke, when he sees Jesus, not only is Jesus the true and better Israel on Exodus, not only is Jesus the true and better lamb that is slain for others, but he is the true and better Moses leading this Exodus journey into the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why the apostle Peter, when he, as a follower of Jesus, um, thought about his future and was preparing the church that he was pastoring and being an apostle to, um, when he realized that he wouldn't be alive forever and he wouldn't be around to serve them, he said this in 2 Peter 1. He said, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, Exodus, you will always be able to remember these things. So he viewed death as an exodus into the promised land of the new creations and new heaven and earth. And that really surprised me. That I thought the exodus was in the past, or the exodus happened, uh, if you like, when Jesus um, died on our behalf. But there's this future exodus that, if you're a believer in Jesus, is coming to all of us. So every time we read the exodus story, I want you to be reminded of the exodus that we will go on to. It's an exodus that we should anticipate when we die into a land that flows with milk and honey. It means if we trust in Jesus, we can have confidence that this life is as bad as it will ever get. It's never going to get worse than this. The future is good. But if you're not a Christian, this life is the, it, it, the best it's ever going to be. The best it's ever going to be. It's just going to get worse. And that should give you real confidence as we live through suffering and grief and difficulty that there is a good thing coming where the worst is left behind, where we enter an existence with Jesus that is free from evil and suffering and all the stuff that makes this life so challenging. So I just want to encourage you believers today, let's put our faith in the exodus to come as we face the challenges in the present life. As we grieve loved ones, and I know many of you grieve loved ones, we need to be reminded and comforted by the fact that Jesus leads each one by the hand on an exodus that is free from suffering and evil. So salvation through substitution, exodus to the promised land, the third way the New Testament writers saw the whole Passover event was to tell us not to imitate their idolatry. Interestingly, they don't really talk about the plagues as they look back. But they do say there is some lessons in the way the Israelites live that can really help us. 1 Corinthians 10 says this. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they pass through the sea. So you're immediately thinking crossing the Red Sea, being led by that pillar of cloud. They were all baptized 
into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was what? It was actually Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So in light of that, don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and they were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them, here we go again, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide you a way out so you can endure. That first exodus, that first generation of Israelites that were 20 years and older, died in the desert. As they got out of Egypt, they died in the desert. Why? Because they had disbelief and, or unbelief and disobedience. But as Christians, the Apostle Paul says, look back, know that you've been saved, you've been made righteous by Jesus. You don't have to earn your salvation. He does that for you. Know that you're a completely new identity. That old sinful side, that's gone. You've been filled with the Spirit. You've got a new uh, self in you that is capable of obeying God. And he says, don't fall into their trap. Know that your heart has been softened by the Holy Spirit so you really can Love and honor God and others with all of your heart. And so the New Testament writers, they look back at what happened and said, just don't be like them. Don't make their mistakes. And I find that really challenging because I want to be confident in the fact that I'm loved because I'm loved because of Jesus. But also, I just want to learn from those mistakes. And my life, if I really look honestly, is riddled with compromise and a lack of integrity. And I was listening to someone speak yesterday, and he pretended that he had a button on his lectern that if he pressed, it would force everyone to tell the truth for three minutes. I'm like, I want one of them buttons. And then I thought, no, I don't want one of those buttons. Imagine if you had to tell the truth, that you couldn't mask it, or you couldn't hide, you couldn't pretend. And I was to ask you some questions about your integrity, your honesty, the way you're really living, where Jesus really fits in your life, what other things compromise you. I just think for all of us, we would be very aware that we, we don't live as we should. And so what's beautiful in church family like this is like there's not like the really godly people at the front and the really ungodly people at the back. We're all really ungodly. And because of grace, we get welcomed into God's presence. And that gives us humility and confidence to look to the person on the left and right and say, this is really hard. And this is where it's not going right for me. And I need your help because I know God wants me to learn from that bad example and be like Christ as much as I can in this life. And then lastly, and we're going to finish with this, I'm over time. 
We're not, it's not just salvation through substitution, exodus to the promised land. We don't imitate their idolatry. But the New Testament reimagines the Passover meal. And in just a moment, we're going to share this together. So just as God asks Israel to remember the incredible events of the Passover meal, so Jesus asks his church to do the same. And he said this in Luke 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink of it again from, from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. You've been around church a while, those sort of words tend to sort of wash over you a little bit. But the Passover meal that Jesus would have had with his disciples contained several courses. And the gospel accounts of the Last Supper tend to focus on the last course, the later bits of the meal. But the earlier courses would have involved a few different things. They would have eaten bitter herbs. Uh, parsley, horseradish, or watercress. And these bitter herbs serve to remind God's people of the bitterness of their bondage in Egypt before he delivered them. But as Jesus takes this new meal, he's anticipating the fact that all the bitterness of this life will fall on his shoulders. There would also be a basket that had three circular pieces of unleavened bread and the father would, as he has the meal, the Passover meal, would take one of the three pieces of unleavened bread and break it, and then he would hide half of it somewhere. And it would symbolize the hidden Messiah whom all Israel hoped to see revealed at some point. But Jesus changed this. When he broke the bread, oh, I don't know why breaking bread so um, emotional for me, but he doesn't hide it. He distributes it. And so if you were a disciple, knowing this is the bit of bread that should be hidden in anticipation of the Messiah coming, it says to you, the Messiah is here. He's at your table. It's a beautiful thing. And lastly, oh, lastly, right, right near the end, there would have been four glasses of unfermented wine. And they would have been drunk. And so just as the bread was without yeast, that there was the wine. And these four glasses represented this meal, like God's blessing and promise of redemption that's found in Exodus 6. But in addition to these four glasses, there would have been this spare glass. Another glass of wine was always poured, but it was never drunk. And traditionally, this glass of wine was for Elijah. And according to custom, custom, the father, as he poured this cup, he would arise from the table and he would open the door in order for Elijah to come in. 
And they wanted Elijah to come in and drink it in the hope that the prophet would appear as a forerunner for the Messiah to make his presence known. And so as the last supper drew to a close, Jesus took the cup. And we think it was probably the Elijah's cup. And as with the bread, he distributes it, showing that this was to be the last Passover meal because the symbolism had finally been fulfilled. Elijah had come, John the Baptist had come and announced the way of the Messiah. And then the Messiah was there in the meal with them. And that beautiful meaning as we drink the wine is welcoming that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus into our lives and to prepare a people ready to meet their God. You know, for the disciples, Elijah's cup, drinking from Elijah's cup as Jesus passed it round symbolized also Elijah's mantle had fallen on them. They were now meant to do the work of Elijah. They were meant to proclaim that the Messiah had come. So we're going to celebrate and remember our Passover lamb, Jesus, who redeems us through the shedding of his blood. So under your seats, you should have Let's just, uh, let's just keep quiet for a moment, shall we? If you've not got one of these, um, the team at the back will help you. Just sort of give them a wave and they'll make sure that you get one. And then we're going to break bread together. And so these little cups, they have like two little handles. And if you just open the first one, it's revealed this little wafer. And if you can all just open it up and take it out. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. The body of Christ broken for you. And then he took the wine. Poured into the cup of Elijah offered to his disciples, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Should we stand and let me pray for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we look back on the Passover and the Exodus, that it reminds us that you saved us through a substitute, through your son Jesus. And Lord, we just say that we want his blood to be applied to our lives. We don't want to go it alone. And we just want to remind ourselves of the great sacrifice that won us new life and an Exodus that's to come into the new heavens and the new earth. Keep us from idols. Keep us, Lord, from anything that distracts us from worshipping you. Help us by your spirit to have you on the throne of our lives. And Lord, thank you that we get to celebrate this meal until you come again.